0: I've entitled our message today, The Church That No One Left, and you'll understand a little bit more what I mean by that uh, as we get into it. There was once a couple who had been married for 60 years. Throughout their life, they had shared everything. They loved each other deeply. They would not kept any secrets from each other, except for a small shoebox that she kept in the top shelf of her closet. When they got married, she put the box there and asked her husband never to look inside of it, never to ask questions about what was in it. And for 60 years, he honored that request. In fact, he forgot about the shoebox until the day when his wife grew gravely ill. Doctors were sure she had no way of recovering. So the man putting his wife's affairs into order remembered that box in the top of her closet, got it down, brought it to her at the hospital. He asked her if perhaps now they might be able to open it. She agreed. They opened the box Inside were two crocheted dolls and a roll of money that totaled $95,000. The man was astonished. The woman told her husband that the day before they were married, her grandma told her that if she and her husband were ever to get into an argument with one another, they should work hard to reconcile. If they were unable to reconcile, she should simply keep her mouth shut and crochet a doll. You don't get marriage advice like that anymore, do you? He was amazed that over 60 years of marriage, they had apparently had only two conversations that they were unable to reconcile. Two dolls, 60 years. Tears came to his eyes. He grew even more deeply in love with this woman. Then he asked about the role of money. What's with this? He asked. And his wife said, Well, every time I crocheted a doll, I sold it for $5. Now, three things about that. Number one, she was a saint. You can't find women like that anymore. Not in North America, I tell you. Uh, never mind. All right. That was not emotionally healthy. I think we'd all agree with that. I mean, you're not going to get her on eHarmony or Match.com or Christian Mingle or Wives R Us. We'd all agree with that. But that wasn't good that she had that view. $19,000. I did the math. In fact, I did all of the math. 60 years of marriage times 365 days is 21,900 days divided by 19,000 dolls. She was making a doll every 1.5 days. In other words, she was always mad at him. I don't even know if they had a good marriage. But the real point is conflict is normal in relationships. Here's the deal. We choose our friends based on common interests and compatibility. My friends throughout my life have typically been people who ice fish, people who kill things, and people who like the Green Bay Packers. Those are my friends. Ice fishing, kill things, Green Bay Packers, that's it. It's not you know, what they have or what relationship I have through the church, it, it tends to be common interests. If those things change, they don't ice fish, They don't shoot things and put it in the freezer. That's what I mean by kill things, hunting. They don't shoot things and put them in the freezer and they don't like my football team. If those things change, I tend not to be as close to them because that's how I want to spend my time. If I find myself in a lot of conflict with people who ice fish, shoot things, and uh, love the Green Bay Packers, if I'm in a lot of conflict with them, I just move on to other friends who ice fish, shoot things, and love the Green Bay Packers. And we're all sort of that way. Well, actually, I might be more shallow than you, but you get the point. The church was not designed like that at all. The church was not designed along those kinds of commonalities. It was a massively diverse group of people. And they were all united by a common faith in Jesus Christ. And as the gospel spread, churches were born. We see in Acts, they're first born in houses. But really, if you look at where the church met early on, they were in the synagogues as people came to faith in Jesus. Then they were kicked out of the synagogues. So they started in homes and synagogues, kind of. it got kicked out of the synagogues. And then they're back in homes. And eventually, they're in buildings. And you sort of have this development over time of you know, modern church buildings, etc. But there was one church. There was not First Baptist Church, and then when that split over pre Second Baptist Church, and then when that split over something else, Third Baptist Church, etc. The natural implication of that is that people had no choices. Therefore, they worked things out. Two weeks ago, we talked about unity, and we were talking about the corporate side of it. And where, you know, we ended up with how many thousands of denominations around the world. And I can't believe that was really Jesus' idea when he made that high priestly prayer that we all would be one and the world would know it. So we talked about that idea of corporate unity and denominations and where we all ended up. But today I want to talk about personal relationships at church. Because there is something in the Bible very clear about that. Not doctrine, not beliefs that divide us, not whether things are A issues, B issues, C issues, D issues, but relationships at church that make it hard for people to want to be at church. Like, the building isn't big enough for both of us sort of thing. You don't want to see that person. One service isn't enough. If only we had a Saturday night service. You know, we could go then. And, and so when that happens, when we have that kind of church pain, because a relationship is broken, we're tempted to move or quit church or go to the Church of the Fresh Start. But God's goal is always restoration in those relationships. So I want to read a familiar passage. I want you to turn there. It's on page number 15 in your New Testament. So you get about three quarters of the way through the Bible in front of you. you. Get to page 15, Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 18. You've probably heard this a few times in your life, many times probably if you've been in church a lot. But I want to talk about this because this is actually something that I would say is virtually never practiced in church. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to begin in verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two or three agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst." Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll repay you everything. And the lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave, who had been forgiven this monumental debt, that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his lord moved with anger. handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My Heavenly Father will also do the same to you. Each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. All right, so we're going to walk through this kind of process that the early church practiced, I believe, and that we really don't have to, largely because of this collection of churches that we all have in modern society, where we tend to just kind of move on with our stuff and go to the next place until something happens there, and then we move on. But want to talk about what God really intended when it came to sort of fractures in the body. First, offenses were dealt with to the extent of their knowledge and influence. Now, what I mean by that is focusing on this word privately. Jesus said, if somebody hurts you, if somebody sins, and and I'm going to get into whether that sin is against you or a broader sin, but he's talking about, you know, there's a one-on-one situation. He's telling people, go one-on-one. And my point here is that the offense is supposed to stay between the offender and the offended. In fact, there's other things in the New Testament that talk about if somebody is like an elder in the church and they need to be rebuked, the church actually says, or the Bible actually says to do it publicly. Why? Because most likely, everybody knows about it. So it's sort of like, to the extent an offense is known or offensive, to that degree you deal with the solution. Nobody was to hit social media with the story. Nobody broadcasted it beyond its initial sphere or scope. That principle alone, when you think of young people today and think of social media, there have been reports done on like teenage girls, the depression rates among teenage girls. You know why that is? Because teenage girls don't have private lives anymore. They live on social media, and so what everyone thinks of them has such a damaging impact on how they view themselves and and their futures, and so there's massive amounts of suicide and depression among that age group because if any little conflict takes place, everybody knows about it. Jesus says that if somebody hurts you, you take it to that person so that that offense, Jesus knows, doesn't metastasize and grow. But there's some other questions here I want to talk about in this passage. First one is, when when I read the passage, and this has to do with the manuscript evidence around this passage, it says, if somebody sins, verse 15, if your brother sins. Now at first this kind of sounds like if I see my brother doing something wrong, I'm supposed to go and confront him about that. Because the earliest manuscripts that we have from the Greek language actually just say, if your brother sins. But later on, Peter says, if somebody sins against me, and most modern versions say, if somebody sins against you, if your brother sins against you. So it's clear that context is about these personal relationships. It's not about just somebody does something wrong and you go talk to them. There seems to be these interpersonal conflicts that take place. Well, what does that look like? What constitutes an offense? Earlier in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus uses this, this uh, word for sin. He uses the word scandalizo. And he says that nobody is to cause any one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Or if you do that, there's terrible consequences. And, and so that's what he started out this chapter talking about. Like you destroy somebody else's faith. You really harm somebody's Christianity. But when he gets to this passage, he doesn't use that extreme word anymore. He just uses a simple word for sin or offense. And that word, hamartano, simply means misses the mark. So somebody does something that misses God's mark, it really hurts you, you're offended by it. So it's some offense that's big enough, it's a big enough deal that fellowship is broken, the body is therefore harmed, it's too big to pass over, You know, the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. We don't necessarily have to go to somebody. Every time somebody says something, it hurts our feelings a little bit. But this is too big to pass over and you have fellowship with that person. Therefore, it must be worked out. Working it out, forgiving others, is a reflection of our faith and restored relationships in the first century in that church are to be the norm because because that was the church that nobody left. Because there were de- no, no denominations. Because there was no church down the street. Because the church at Corinth was the church at Corinth. There was one church. So you worked out your stuff. But that's where this gets a little murky. Because we don't all agree about, you know we wouldn't have the same sensitivity about different things. What's a real offense? Offenses aren't that uniform, and this is where I wish Jesus would have said a whole lot more than he did, because I might sin against somebody, you might sin against me, you might sin against the person across the pew here, and and by that, everyone would agree you did something really wrong, or you might do something that somebody doesn't like, but it's not necessarily a sin, like if your pastor picks on cats probably not a sin. You may not like it. You know, so there's things that happen in our lives that, that we know we cross the line. There's things that happens where we might not agree. We all have different levels of sensitivity about things. And so there's this process that God puts in place for that all to get sorted out. Second, the church stood in God's place as the arbiter of relational Reconciliation. Now, as we go through this and look at what God set up for us, I know that inside of us, even as Christ followers looking at the Bible, you're going to say, this stuff's kind of crazy. This is pretty radical stuff. Like, why did God ever think this was a good idea? Because it's so far from what we actually do. So, first, the offended person goes to the one who hurt them. If that is unsuccessful, they're supposed to go get a couple of people and bring them and go back to that person. Now, what's going on here is this. Jesus is Jewish. Most of the Bible is Jewish. It's written in the Old Testament. The Treaty, Deuteronomy and Exodus, they're a covenant between God and the nation of Israel. And in there, you have their religious laws and their civil laws. And in that civil law area, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, you've got rules about how people are supposed to work out conflicts. So many people believe what Jesus is doing here is he's taking some things out of sort of Jewish civil law and he's bringing them into the church age. He's just sort of them, Like, whatever we were doing in ancient Israel, we're going to keep doing. So this is patterned after Old Testament Judaism. So these two people you bring with you are serving as witnesses as well as advisors. And I want you to see sort of how this becomes almost a legal setting. Verse 16, if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Doesn't that sound sort of like legal language? That's what's going on there. Then if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. This is talking about excommunication over people not working out their stuff in the only church that existed. That's how important this was that people do this. And then he uses more sort of legal language. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. We talked about that a few weeks ago. That's rabbinic language for what they would permit or forbid. They're using that same kind of language. So the church is making this decision. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then the most misquoted verse in all of the Bible by Christians. If two or three, or if two of you agree on earth about anything that you may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. That has absolutely nothing to do with a prayer meeting. It's not saying there's more power when two or three people are together in prayer than if you're praying by yourself. What it's talking about is how the church becomes the arbiter, almost the court, if you will, in relational reconciliation. One-on-one, three-on-one, the whole church, and potentially excommunication, which would have meant something back then, because people wouldn't have gone to the church down the street. They were literally put out of the body until they would work something out with a fellow Christian. Now, I realize like that just makes all of us sort of cringe. It's like, wow, God takes this way, way more seriously than we do. Offenses are going to happen. There weren't many or any choices in the first century. So reconciliation was and expectation the church had a role and jesus said god was in the decisions of the church in that process now this rarely or never takes place in the modern church. And I'm not saying we should have a whole lot of it in the modern church, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that was a different world because of the few choices, but it also shows how much God's expectation is that people work things out in the body. Offenses are gonna happen, we stew over them, they escalate, we look for another church, we tell a lot of friends what happened, we take ourselves to the next church, we lose a measure of peace that would have come from reconciliation, We don't learn how to process our differences in healthy ways. This is really normal. And it's actually one of the reasons people give up on church altogether. Because it becomes a relational disconnect. And then we completely lose the relational accountability that God intended. And we break Christ's body. And we're not happy. You know, I was reading recently about a study, and this is for... uh, Well, I think this was probably done on older individuals... But it was a study on happiness and sort of looking back on life, what makes people happy. And of course, what we naturally think, and, and there's been studies that say you have to get to a certain level in the middle class where all your needs are met. And once all your needs are met, we all know that even greater wealth does not really make you happier. You get your basic needs met, you're as happy as you're going to be from material issues. If you have a lot more money, you've got a lot more to worry about to sort of protect it, etc. But the reality is your quality of life does not go up with, with resources, additional resources, once you get to sort of a basic standard of living. But what does affect Happiness is relationships. And more and more studies are finding this. It's the quality of our relationships. That's what matters. This issue of people carrying all this relational pain in the church, I'm not gonna say it's a modern development, but it is more modern because of how mobile we are as a society. Third, based on the forgiveness we've received, we're to extend unlimited forgiveness to others. Now this is explained in a couple of different ways. In a question and answer with Peter and a story from Jesus. So Peter is with Jesus here, and Jesus is just given these expectations for the early church. The early church hasn't been born yet. It's going to be born a little bit later after one of Peter's sermons. Peter sort of views relationships as more disposable. And he's got the same view that that we would sort of have. I mean, you're only gonna have a relationship get strained so much before you're gonna say, you know what, I'm just gonna move on. I'm gonna find different friends who like to ice fish, shoot things, and love the Green Bay Packers. You know, we only put up with so much before we say, that's sort of enough for me. Therefore, we would all agree, even if we'd say forgiveness doesn't have limits, our relational capacity does. So Peter had that view, and he actually got that view from the rabbis of his day. Because Peter asked the question, how many times must I forgive somebody? And actually, the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis of the day, had that debate on a regular basis. And they had come up with a really interesting answer. They said, and this is the majority view, and this is what happens when too many guys have too much time on their hands. The majority view is, a repeated sin is to be forgiven three times. Now, what's amazing is these guys are married. I don't know how that works. You know, you heard the first illustration about the, you know, the 60 years of marriage and $95,000 worth of dolls sold. A repeated offense or repeated sin is to be forgiven 3 times, a fourth offense required no forgiveness. So it's sort of a three strikes and you're out. Fourth offense, you do not forgive. It's just a fascinating situation. The rabbis actually debated this on a regular basis. And so Peter, when he says, should I forgive somebody up to seven times, he is being incredibly magnanimous. He is thinking he is doubling the generosity, the grace giving of the rabbis. So he's thinking, the clergy say it's three times, let's say seven So he says to Jesus, how many times should I forgive? How about seven? Well, what he doesn't know is Jesus, when he wasn't a carpenter, he was a math major in high school. And so Jesus says to Peter, I want you to skip addition and subtraction. We're gonna do some multiplication. Let's say 70 times seven. 490. And Jesus isn't trying to put a limit on it at 490. Jesus' point is, we forgive people endlessly. Endlessly. We forgive them endlessly because that's how God treated us. So Jesus tells the story of a Middle Eastern king with a debtor. The debt was 10,000 talents. One talent was 15 years wages for a commoner. All right, So for a common laborer, 15 years wages. So think of somebody in the trades which now pay better than a lot of white collar work but the reality is so you get tradesmen in the early first century. 15 years work for a tradesman is one talent. One talent was also, I'm sorry to say, but it was sort of the price of a a slave in the ancient world. That's one talent. 15 years wages for a common person or the price of a slave. And this person owed this king 10,000 talents. In other words, it would be 150,000 years of wages for a common laborer. So the reason that this story is set up this way, and the reason Jesus uses that is it's a completely unrealistic number. Some people have done the math and said, "Well, this, this talent would be maybe you know, 12 or 14 million dollars." And somebody else said, "Yeah, but do inflation for 2,000 years." And one commentator says, "This would be like a billion dollars. Oh, shoot. Sorry. That's back spasms and not having a heart attack. <laughs> Much to some of your dislike from two weeks ago, I know. We'll talk about that later. 150,000 years of wages for a common laborer. So a billion dollars, that's the debt, and it's due immediately. It's due immediately, a billion dollar debt, and the debt simply could not be paid. So the king is getting advice from somebody and people are saying, you need to to sell this man and his family sort of into debtor's prison, sell them as slaves and that is how people became slaves in the ancient world if they couldn't pay a debt. That could happen. Sell his possessions, sell him, sell his children, sell his wife, and just take not even pennies on the dollar. But if you do that, at least justice is served. You've made it clear that nobody can have a debt like that, and you're not going to look the fool as king. The debtor has a billion-dollar debt, and he just fell on his face in front of the king, and he offered what he could never deliver. He said, I'll pay it back. I will pay it back. Even if, <laughs> literally, even if I have to work 150,000 lifetimes, which was literally what he would have to work. He didn't say that, but that's, what it's, that's the implication. I will pay it back. He couldn't pay it back. The king knew he couldn't pay it back. The king knew it was impossible, but the man's heart was in the right place. He's fallen on his face. He's begging for his wife and children. He's begging for the opportunity to make up for the debt He owes. And the king says, no, you can never do that. So I'm just going to forgive it all. Well, who's that representing the story? That's God. We come to God, we get salvation that we didn't earn. I mean, you know, we've got, if there's a sin meter in heaven, uh, I feel like my life might have been like a fan, you know? You know, there's a lot of stuff we do in our lives that's wrong, And we could never be good enough to undo that and earn God's grace. And so the beautiful thing about God is Jesus paid for it on the cross. God looks at the the bank of sin that we've got from that sin meter and he says, you know what? You couldn't repay this. I'm giving you grace. I'm giving you salvation. Jesus paid for it. All I want in return is live your life. Follow me in your life and acknowledge who I am. That's it. That's God in the story. He forgave the debt. It's what we get in salvation. But then look at what this forgiven person turned around and did. Verse 28, that slave, the one who was released of his debt, went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. Now, 100 denarii is not a billion dollars. 100 denarii is like three months worth of work for a common laborer. So it's, it's in the thousands. It's payable. So he went out and found the slave who owed him 100 denarii, and he seized him. He began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll repay you. But he was unwilling. He went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. That doesn't allow him to pay it back. He's in prison. So when his fellow slaves saw this, this injustice, what had happened, they were deeply grieved and they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. And the scary verse My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you doesn't forgive his brother from your heart. What Jesus is saying is that first experience where the king forgave the billion dollar debt that could never be repaid, that's God. That second experience tends to be like us or Peter in the story where we want this magnanimous God, and yet when we're offended, when somebody hurts us, we don't want to act like God. We need to be more like God. A few applications here. First, the church was meant to be a permanent spiritual and relational family. Said that at the beginning, talked about it last a uh, couple of weeks ago a little bit. The early church was a permanent place for people. It was this newfound faith that united Jews and Gentiles, slave and free and people of all different races and, and uh, sort of social st- uh, status uh, situations. It was a radically diverse body, but there were no other alternatives. I mean, it was the church at Corinth. So it was everybody who was at Corinth who became a follower of Jesus Christ. No denominations, no splits. The church was the church. When people said, you're going to church on Sunday? He said, yeah. They said, which one? He's like, what do you mean, which one? The church. The church. The one that follows Jesus. That was it. We don't live in that world. We have have choices. But the church was meant to be this spiritual and relational family. And it wasn't like it's a cult. Nobody could leave it. It was the church. And it was just one, and therefore nobody could leave it. Second, since I'm talking about this, there are times to leave a church. Make sure it's the right time. Uh, you may be here visiting Bethany today, and, and I guess I might be telling you to go back and work out your stuff at your last church. Maybe you shouldn't be here. That's possible. In light of my title, um, someday I'm going to be church shopping. You know, I'll be retired and I'll be like just a you know regular Christian not in ministry and Dee, Dee and I will be probably living in, I'm guessing, North Dallas, Texas and my dream would be a Dell Webb 55 plus retirement home with a really nice pool and a nice weight room, all right? That's probably where I'll end up. No ice fishing though, no ice fishing. And not much good hunting, but Packer fans are there. So when we're down in North Dallas, Texas... I'll be church shopping. And what are the prerequisites? What would I look for? Well, three things. Doctrinal purity, beliefs matter. Churches are struggling with doctrinal purity today. The Culture's drifting, churches tend to drift with it. I care about what a church believes. Can't go to a church that doesn't really believe the Bible missional integrity, the purpose of a church matters. If I go to church and I don't think they're trying to reach lost people, don't think they're really growing their own, I don't think that the service is relevant to, to sort of multiple generations, I don't want to be there because I want to be in a place where I believe things can actually happen for the kingdom of God. So missional integrity. Leadership credibility. If I, if I can't trust the elders, if I, if I don't like the lead pastor, I probably don't want to listen to them every week, so i got to trust that, so leadership credibility. You know what I'm not looking for? perfect people. Do you know why? Because there aren't any. There aren't any. All it's going to take is a little while to figure that out. You know, they may be friendly the first Sunday I'm there, but the reality is if I never serve, if I never join a group, if I never do anything except Sunday, I'm going to be able to avoid church pain, there's the recipe to avoid church pain. Just don't get involved. Come in and just do that. The problem is that's not being part of a church. That's just a spectator that's looking for a church. So I'm going to do, Didi Dee Dee and I are going to do what we always do when we're down there in North Texas living on the Del Webb community. We're going to volunteer. We're going to serve. We're going to connect. We're going to find new friends. And that means we're taking risk. And with risk is probably going to come some disappointment because somebody's going to hurt us. That's going to happen. There are times to leave a church. But relational issues are not the reason. So, third, accept some level of relational disappointment at church because stuff's going to happen. Now, this is a tough one because I am concerned about, and I think many of us are concerned about, the cultural trend towards sensitivity in general. Like, people are easily offended. Now, don't get me wrong, I, we're gonna do some things that offend people, and I'm right in there with you in that. When I look at the scriptures, I don't know anybody in the scriptures who did more name-calling than Jesus of Nazareth, and he's the son of God. If you look at the things he said, I'm kinda of shocked. It's like he's calling people names, den of vipers, whitewashed two of them. I them. Mean, he's pretty aggressive. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5.12, actually says something, and I'm kind of shocked he said. He's talking to people who are trying to force Gentiles to become Jews by being circumcised. And he goes another level and tells them to go, like, eliminate the fact that they're men. So there's some really aggressive language there. And so I'm concerned about the level of sensitivity we all have in our current culture. But I say that to say this. You're going to be disappointed here. And wherever else you go, because people... People go to church. The fact that I'm here is a problem. The fact that you're here is a problem because we're people and we are going to disappoint each other. Church is complicated. Two weeks ago, I preached a message on unity. Some of you would call it the disunity message. You know, what's interesting about that is I actually probably got the best response to that message of anything I've said in three and a half years here. And it also upsets some of you. Same words, overwhelmingly positive response and a negative response at the same time. Now, having said that, I wish I had a couple of minutes back of that 40 minutes. I wish I would have said a couple of things a little different, maybe not laced it with a couple of illustrations. I'm a pretty passionate guy. I get wound up, I had coffee, And you get Paul. So I'm an imperfect person, I hurt some of you. Some people needed to hear that. Some people are feeling like, man, that was my church, there were some great things that happened, and he undid that, and that wasn't my intended purpose. But if I'm here, I'm gonna hurt you. If you're here, you're gonna hurt me, and some of you have, pretty deeply. The reality is, it's not that churches are painful and broken. It's that you and I are painful and broken. And that's not gonna change. On this side of heaven, that's not going to change. Because churches are nothing more than collections of people who are painful and broken. All churches, all people. So I think we need to go into church settings recognizing if I'm gonna get to know people, and I'm gonna try to love people, and I'm gonna take risks with people, know, stuff's going to happen. Stuff is actually going to happen. And in my heart of hearts, I want to be able to forgive people and move on. I want to maintain sort of some relational integrity with everybody that I can. It it might mean that some people might not be my best friends because I might just realize that's probably not going to be a great relationship. But I want to be able to look everyone in the eyes. I want to be able to say hi to everybody I want to be able to say we're all in the body of Christ together and we're supposed to love each other. And so we will. And remember, that was Jesus' greatest identifying purpose in unity in the church was to be a witness to the world. So finally, be committed to reconciliation whenever possible. God wants reconciliation. It's a beautiful thing in in our lives. So I was just down in, as I said, Birmingham, Alabama with my dad. And my dad's name is Melvin. He's actually almost 87. I'd never seen him this way. He's um, quite hunched over. He had back surgery. I don't know how long ago it was, but back surgery. He he looked like an old man to me. I'd never seen him like that. And that was a little bit painful. But my dad and I have a lot of history, and I'm not going to share a lot of it, but we had a rough first 25 years. Let's just put it that way. A rough first 25 years. I had a rough childhood to the point that when I was young and I was walking downtown in Whitewater, Wisconsin, I literally wondered if I went to the police station if I would have to go back to my home. I had a friend who had a big brother. Big brother, big sister program. Do they have that up here? Anything like that? Kind of a mentor program? Okay. So I had a friend and we went out bowling and he's got his big brother there. My friend is there and I think his dad was an alcoholic and we had no alcohol in our home. We were Baptists. We didn't believe in it or dancing or anything else that was fun. So... So we, uh, I went out with my friend, and we're going bowling. He's got his big brother there. And I, and I remember this all the way back to when I was a child. I'm thinking, what does it take to get a big brother? I mean, his dad may be drinking, but I'm getting hit an awful lot. And it got to the point where I threatened my dad physically. I said, if you hit me again, I'm hitting back. I believe that happened, because I remember tumbling on the ground with him one time. Around then, I was 17, 16 or 17. And in my mid-twenties, I thought of never going home again. Ever. And I was a seminary student, actually out of seminary, and I thought of just walking away from my family for the rest of my life. Because it was only conflict and pain. I was dating Dee Dee at the time, and... She basically told me, man, you need to talk to your dad. And I called him up, and I talked to him about the wound that was in my life from what everyone here would consider physical abuse today. And he agreed. And it started a path of reconciliation between the two of us. He actually owned it. He remembered things. I was shocked he remembered and he took some ownership. In fact, to the point that I believe he called all of my other siblings and talked to them about how he had raised us. And I remember wanting to try to restore that relationship, so I invited him to Canada. We were living in Wisconsin at the time, we went on a couple of fishing trips in Ontario and it wasn't an easy, like, right away, everything's great. I remember I'm in Canada with him, you know, out on a lake, and I wanted to put him at the bottom of the lake a few times. You know, it's like, the reality is, you know, you don't just restore a relationship, and everything's great. Some of the same things that would have driven me crazy when I was a kid were still driving me crazy, and it's like, okay, but I was trying. And over time, our hearts softened, and I loved my dad. And I would defend my dad to my death, I love my dad. He was an imperfect parent. But he admitted it. And reconciliation was worth it. Because otherwise, I'm just a victim, and I'm a 60-year-old man full of bitterness towards his father, who didn't have one good parent, frankly. I had one really good parent. God believes reconciliation is always worth it. Always worth it. And we're the recipients of the grace of God. And so God says, we need to be like that with everybody. Reconciliation is always worth it. Maybe for you there's some conversations you need to have with some people in your past so that you're not carrying that kind of pain in your life. But as a follower of Christ, be committed to reconciliation whenever possible. We've been forgiven much. Forgive others much. God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that each of us would be like the king in that story who represents you and your character, who recognizes that we, we, as we receive grace from our king, ought to be, of all people, the greatest dispensers of that same grace and forgiveness to everyone so that we can restore relationships and model what it's like to have God-like character. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again and God bless you.